Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes, and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Maria Lewis, I'm so happy. Finally, Storm's temper pays off and it feels like you wrote a, a, a an evil henchman fight scene ripped right from the pages of The Last Boy Scout. Someone gets a snake thrown at their face. <laughs> Fuck yeah, we're at Chapter 12. Welcome to the It Came From The Deep After Show. Fuck yeah, let's fling them snakes, baby. Belcher's sea snakes, come through. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. If I was Jason Concepcion, that would be my yeah moment. But uh, I can't do his voice as well as he can. Weirdly. Oh, so good. But yeah, look, chapter 12, it came from the deep. It's a fucking banger. Heading heading for the business end, there's family, there's family turmoil, there's, um, you know, kind of all of the characters crashing together. There's great sort of um, henchmen reveals and and like the true bad guys of this thing. Um, And... It, it doesn't give us, the reader, nor the characters, any fucking time to really process it. It's just so mm-hmm. heavy. So it's really fun to actually get to do this podcast with you and sort of break some of it down because it's just like so much happens. And uh, including, you know, just just cool shit like someone getting hit in the face with a fish with a fish bowl that has a snake in it, um, storm barging through and like knocking someone out. It's just, you know, bullets. He literally, Love it. He Love fully to see it. like wide receivers, somebody <laughs> against a door. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fu- I I'll- fucking love right getting to write shit like that. <laughs> I'll Seriously. fucking smash if you run at me. I'll fucking smash you. <laughs> I'll fucking oh, that's Queensland baby. Love that guy. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to meet him, but it's just like it's nice to watch through a screen. Oh, so good. So t- you said you love writing about that. Tell me about how fun it is to like actually have people smashing each other and writing about it. Nice. Because because I just want to give some context for people who are listening. There are some directors and especially when you're talking about films and like your books are very cinematic because I think you've got a movie and a TV brain. That's just who you are. And so um, some people talk about like there's directors and then sometimes they have second unit directors, like action Mm. directors who like take the reins of the action for them. But I feel like like Kevin Smith, how he hated doing second unit. (laughs) unit. (laughs) I'm just like, okay, son. And, and, and whereas you get other people um, like, you know, for example, the, the, you know, the John Wick filmmakers, et cetera, who are like, they were second units and now they mm. want to direct their own stuff because they want to infuse the whole picture with that action energy. They literally have a company that is entirely people who shot second unit yeah, <laughs> and they made exactly. their own company. I love I'm it. like, I love that for them. Love, I it. love it. But you're talking about writing these action scenes. Tell me about how fun it is to be like, ah, oh, after all this talking, Someone smash someone. Someone <laughs> throw someone a snake in someone's face. Let's go. Someone smash a can. Um, you know what? It's not as fun as you would expect. Usually just because to get the juice, the squeeze is really difficult. It is really hard to write a good fight scene, but it's also really hard to write an original fight scene. Like oftentimes I might just do placeholder fight scene or like just write a really bare bones skeleton fight scene and be like, fuck it. I'll come back to it later. I'll figure this out. Like in the moment, for instance, 
in The Witcher Quarter Death, the big finale between um, the the big bad, which is like this group of giant spider people. <laughs> Makes sense in the context of the story. <laughs> so in The Witcher Quarter Death, for example, the big showdown happens, the big showdown with these evil giant spider people. It makes sense in the context of the story, I swear. It happens in the Boss Castle Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, which is a real place. Um, but if you've ever walked in there, it's like, a hoarder's nightmare. There's just like historical artifacts and literal <laughs> skeletons and witch shit just hanging at all different points and corners inside this old sort of like hut that's at the bottom of um, this gorge kind of thing on a river in Boss Castle. And that fight happens like as people come into the museum, like tourists. So it's kind of happening in and around uh, like people trying to do a tour, if that makes sense. And that was super fun because it was so specific and it felt unique, but very often it feels like a lot of fight scenes. um, It's so easy for them to be stale or to feel stale. Like it's just always easy to just fucking have it at a warehouse. And a big part of making them good is choosing a setting that is a contextual. So it makes sense for the story and it makes sense for the characters but B, that is unique or feels fresh because like the warehouse fight scene thing, I completely understand why that pops up as a trope so many times. I mean, that's where the fucking fight scene happens at the end of the Who's Afraid. Like, come on, I'm hoping I've done better by now. But um, I understand why that's there and why it gets used. And that is because it is easy. It like gives you a lot of space to be able to move a lot of characters around. And also it gets you through like the plot loopholes of like, oh shit, where can a fight scene take place that there's not going to be a lot of bystanders or maybe there are a lot of bystanders or whatever. And in Who's Afraid 2, the big fight scene happens with like a bunch of babies. Like there's <laughs> all these babies that have been abducted to get eaten by this werewolf cult. So they're like having the big showdown in a rave with like just all these babies being like flung about left and right. So I tried, by the time it wrote, it came from the deep. I was trying to sort of tap into that idea of having a fight scene that felt unique, but also the benefit of it came from the deep is it ain't really a fight scene book. It's just especially a, compared to my others, you know, no, like the I, characters are not physically proficient in combat. So already you're like sick. I only have to do like maybe one or two of these. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be messy and it's not like you're, you're setting the table for it, but it's like, I think you've just nailed a couple of things that I want to talk to you about, which is like the actual considerations of doing it because you're trying to A, be inventive, but B makes sense. And also you want the relief, like the mm. violence in it. You want it to be like, yeah, but you also don't want yeah. it to be like, you know, like Kaya was never going to do a roundhouse kick. You know, like to to someone. And if she did, it would be so dumb because it's so like dumb. we haven't seen. Like that's why when she gets attacked at Lake Humans, her thing is like I can't physically fight off these two masked men, but I might be able to swim them. Like you have to play to the character's strengths and their abilities. That's why, like, um, was there ever a point that you thought that these guys could like jump them and then like Kaya could hit them with her? paddleboard in the face or something like that was like that like the most trying to think of like i'm just all the most surf club um uh um, weaponry that i could think of like you know smash their face i like that you bring that up 
I'm literally working on a pilot at the moment where there's a murder victim who gets their throat slit with a fin. (laughs) (laughs) So it's that like exact same mentality you're just talking about. I'm like, perfect. And it's all about like, you get your throat slit with a thin, um, with a fin. It's not like a knife blade, which is like a straight Mm. object. Obviously a throat slit with a fin is like the depth varies. Anyway, I spent a lot of time yesterday looking at fucked crime scene photos. It was horrible. But, um, and and yeah, like you might be familiar with a fin chop, like obviously being, and and for someone who's listening, you don't know what a fin chop is. It's very common in like, um, it's very common in surfing very accidentally, uh, but some people talk about it as like an attack, like it can be an attack, which is, uh, someone is standing up on their board, riding a pretty big wave. Usually you maybe get in their way. They don't steer out of you on time. They're standing on the board and they ride over you with their mm. board and they have fins. And just because of the momentum and the weight that can just like slice like muscle. Like- yeah. The fins themselves aren't like razor sharp. No. That's why trying to plan a murder around that is tough because it has to have both like the momentum, Strength, the movement, momentum, but yeah. the weight. Um, but that's also why you see like, mad locals only biffo in the car parks at like Burley Point and they'd be swinging their boards like fin first <laughs> like people are swinging it with the fins like get back get back um <laughs> but in the context like oh, you know what you said about Kaya swinging her board great in theory but then her board has to be in that scene yeah and then it's like okay but why is her board in that scene like as fun and as it is to write a scene where you like have death by sea snake, which is like a nice little kill bill volume two mm-hmm. shout out, like truly such a dope scene in that movie. It makes sense in the context of all of the assassins are named after different snakes. So it's just like a, it gets to be fucking cool, but B it gets to be fucking contextual. And in this fight scene, it's like, okay, we've got X amount of people. We either need to permanently like, maim them take them out of the scene or you know um take them out of the action for x amount of time for the characters to get away and move on to this next plot point and a sea snake is great because like what would be in a lab you can't kill someone by starfish you just can't a belted sea snake (laughs) is a fucking horrible way to go for people who don't know sea snakes are literally the most poisonous snakes in the world like overland species but you very rarely ever have fatalities from them because a we're like there's not a bunch of us in the oh, sea yeah. like there is on land. But also the radius of their bite diameter is very small. So oftentimes the only places that they could get their wee jaws wide enough to bite you is in between the gaps in your fingers or your toes. So again, very specific. And if it's like if they're biting you between your toes, the toe like the skin on your toes is thicker, so it's likely the poison wouldn't penetrate but if it was your fingers that's like closer to artery so you know radial artery blah 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 all that kind of shit so this is like the things like it's so technical I think that's why I don't often enjoy writing fight scenes is they very rarely feel fun everything has to be there for a reason but it is enjoyable for me like I when I was going back through this chapter I remembered that well first of all the original prologue, I totally forgot this, but as I was just like going back through things, the original prologue was way longer. So when it originally opened, you had a whole conversation between Professor Waldman and the henchmen. Mm. Midway through, they kill him. And then the remaining half of the prologue was the crime scene. And it just was a little like, 
too much too soon. So I cut the whole interaction with the henchman and Professor Waldman out of it and just started the prologue on them arrive, house go and um, Lee and Chen arriving at the scene and investigating the scene. I was like, it's more mysterious that way. We're cutting straight into the mystery of it. And it's it was just less um, less heavy lifting early. I just want to make it as easy as an entry point for people straight away. A dead body is an awesome way to do that. Also, so is an empty tank. But specifically in that scene when it was longer, the henchmen were also all dressed in black. And it was like, such a cliche and just so fucking boring um but it's just easier like you're trying to differentiate them you're like oh fuck it I'll just put them in black I'll figure it out later and then as I'm going back through it I'm like it's really sticking with me and it's like a real like fucking like thorn in my paw and it was bugging the shit out of me and so I made the pivot to I've been reading a lot of um (laughs) Matt Fraction and David Ayer's Hawkeye, which is a really fantastic series. It's the basis for the upcoming Marvel show. But they have these dudes in it uh, called the Tracksuit Draculas, and they're <laughs> Romanian and they just wear tracksuits. And their only dialogue for the whole series is bro. So bro, 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 bro. It's fucking hilarious, but it's really funny. But it's also such a distinct aesthetic that you wouldn't necessarily think about. And also something like, true romance in the color palette that they use and the types of fabrics that they use and what's that is used to communicate. So I made the switch to them wearing like kitsch, non-authentic Hawaiian shirts, things that could make you pass through the Gold Coast more easily because you kind of look like a daggy dad and also kind of a thuggy dad. Like even if you saw their tats or you saw their whatever, they're dressed like super da- daggy. So you're like, oh, uh, shit, he's uh, out of prison here with the family for summer I, holidays. I want to I I tell you how authentic and spot on your thing was. I was recently down the south coast in New South Wales and I was going to a food truck there at um, a caravan park. Uh, and I went up there and there was a guy who was literally dressed like one of these henchmen. He had like, he had like, he, he looked like Ruffer's guts at, on his head and he was wearing this like hat, but he had this really trashy Hawaiian shirt and then a really yes. trashy pair of shorts yes. that were completely different patterns. And he rolled up and like one of his mates was there with him <laughs> as he was ordering. And he goes, at, like, he didn't say it to his face. He just walked away and goes, check out that ensemble. And I just laughed my ass off. Like I was like not meant to be listening, but, but that's the kind of like, this guy didn't, this guy has never worn a Hawaiian shirt in any other setting except here, because he's Mm. like, I need to tell you that I'm on holiday or Mm -hmm. maybe he's in witness protection. I don't know. I don't know Mm. which one it is or he's an, or he's like an undercover cop on like a Batuta advocate post. Like he's one of those three. Oh my God. That fucking, that picture, (laughs) that is the vibe I'm going for. That fucking viral picture of the undercover cops at a music festival as they're trying to fucking, you know, make people unsafe by the stress with the pingers as they try and hunt down shit is the vibe you want something that feels like a square in a circle hole you know something that like just doesn't you can't quite figure out what it is but it just doesn't feel right and it's also like the contrived nature of the two of them wearing shit like that you know I really want to do one like at a different point for villains with um 
old denim <laughs> like that be their uniform is just all denim like but, but terrible also, denim jeans denim jacket denim button-up shirt like the whole bit you know triple denim go hard um triple but denim. I, I was just gonna say i actually have that outfit upstairs maybe i'll wear it for the next podcast but um i was just gonna say there's also the shane black of it all so people who love shane black you would know things like kiss kiss bang bang along kiss goodnight uh you know iron man 3 lethal weapon uh, uh the nice guys all terrific movies and he there's a great ponytailed henchman in iron man 3 and he's like, he, he, and and obviously Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark is such a shit bag and a, and a shit story. He's like Ponytail. Like that's his nickname. It's like Ponytail. And so that was another thing that this conjures in that scene of like, okay, great. Um, and, and, you know, it's poor, poor old Travis Tishop. We, we gave him lots of, uh, we gave him lots of praise in the previous episodes of this show. And like, uh, he's he, like, I, I love poor the fucking un- guy. So over his head. He I know he's know. so over his head, such a sweetie pie. Like we talked about it in a previous episode. Also like, he's like in for the long haul with Kaya and he's like, seriously, like at this moment is like, Oh, this sucks. Like this, like, he's such a sweetie pie. He's like, this really, this really sucks. This relationship, this whole thing. It's, it's not good. It's not good. But then at the same time, he like loses the girl and gains the gift of knowledge and that he gets to meet Amos and have this experience that is unique um, at that specific time in the story. You know, his, his career mentor, mentor or career idol, if you will, um, learned the same secret that he got to learn. And it, it's just like, Amos is a physical embodiment of the Holy Grail for Travis Tiship. So it's like, oh shit, I'm not going to get my dick wet is like a small concern <laughs> compared to the larger thing of like him and Kaya not being a proper reality is so insignificant in comparison to everything that Amos and his existence represents in a way that's really exciting. And there was like a little line about there, you know, we, we bring in the specifics of the, the humpback whale migration and what that means, which you touched on earlier with the documents, but also like chapters five or six, when Kai is describing the swirling shapes on his body, it's like all those little pieces start clicking into place now. Um, and that being the way that they find each other back to e- back to each other, even if they've been separated, regardless, it's the same way, like, like elephant memory, you know, they always, they know where to go. They know the same path, but it's really hard to make that comparison work. <laughs> Yeah, it's, when elephants are like a land creature and I'm like, okay, so how do I make it elephants? How do, how do, I, how do I find my elephants? But where, um, I just want to also say there's Elephant one touch. Seal. There's, one, there's one touch before we find that because that's like, that's the actual clarification in some of the mm. bits that we just haven't learned yet. So we find like put that puzzle piece together that has brought the picture together. But I also love this. In a lot of these romanticized, you know, uh, uh, fantasy pictures, um, a fantasy, whether it's, you know, whether it's a poem, whether it's a novel like yours, whether it's a film, it's like you get caught up in the romanticism of like the isolation, these two beings finding each other interspecial doesn't matter. And sometimes Mm -hmm. can be so crazy overt and actually kind of really more erotic than most movies in something like the shape of water. And I just Mm -hmm. love that. I mean, that's pretty fucking erotic. (laughs) Extremely, but I mean, she does, she does diddle herself for a time. She flicks her bean to an egg beater and then she fucking scrambles his eggs in the bathroom. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
there's erotic and then her there's her showing via her fingers to Octavia Butler about how his dicky works. Like <laughs> there's subtext and then the subtext rapidly becomes text. You know what sub, I, mean? I sub- love that Guillermo del Toro is like, yeah, fuck it. We're going to have a disabled woman at the center of this story. Her allies are going to be a queer and immigrant and a black woman. Um, and there's also going to be a fish man. You're going to see the fish man lots, but like, let's just have it all. Let's have, have like sexual agency and it not being implied, but it having happened. She's fucking glowing post O. Like <laughs> I, he just really goes there. And I, it makes there. me so happy that, that won the Oscar, the Best Picture Oscar. I think it really, truly deserves it. And every time I hear people get mad about it on the rewatchables, I'm like, fucking cry about it, bitch. It deserved it. Fuck yeah. The fish fucking movie won. But in 10 years, that's going to be the least offensive. Like you, if you look back and you see The Shape of Water won, like it's, it, I think in isolation. Deserved just- it. And a great movie. No, People no, just need to get over whatever I, their fucking I, beef was. But no, yeah, I, I can't was, remember what it was. I, I, I was just going to say there's so many other pick, best picture winners that you're like, no way. Like, for example, the year that Shakespeare in Love beat out Saving Private Ryan. I mean, e- everyone can just. Stop. Driving Miss Daisy. Like, come okay. on. Okay, let's move on. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but, but I love Storm in his ignorance being the protective brother that he is, is just like, remember, you're not the same species. Like, it's just, again, I love it. It's so Brisbane, Gold Coast, bring it on. Queenslander, love it. Do you Um, also like that the instigating incident of the fight that starts, that opens this chapter is Casey coming down to see if Storm and Kai want to go kneeboarding with him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, like, literally finds any, Dad, you weren't here for it. He's like, I just yeah, wanted like, to see you got to go Hey, you guys want to go kneeboarding? Like, he is their mate, not their father. And by God, that's never more clear in a scene where he's like, hey, you guys want to go kneeboarding? And they're like, she's fucking a fish, Dad. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. It's so weird. Um, So... We now get to the the point of if it wasn't sort of in between the lines, uh, Dr. Waldman's studies of the whale migrations are all really so that if he does release Amos, because his greatest fear is that if he releases him, he's never going to be able to find his family again. So he starts to, he's doing exactly what you did, where you were like, how do I make elephants but wet? And he's like, how do I find mermaids? How do I know if I release my mermaid son that he's going to yeah. be able to find his people? Professor Waldman had watched uh, the 1996 film Congo many times, and his concerns were the On same. On my watch list today, I can't wait. That can't wait. oh my god, seriously, so yeah, good. I'm doing his a concern- I'm doing a Wes Craven's new nightmare Congo double feature, and I'm fucking <laughs> excited as I am so excited. His concerns were the same concerns they have for Amy. You know, like they want her to be integrated back <laughs> into the wild. <laughs> But they don't want to do it at the expense of like oh. her safety. Amy said. Um, so they don't want to do it with like the apes that are all like, we love diamonds. They want to do it with the gorillas who are like, you know, we're, we're mad about the forest. And that's the same vibe. Like I am truly, the story of it came I'm from the truly deep, grateful. basically Congo. <laughs> I'm truly grateful that we've taken turns so far left of center of what I possibly thought this show would be. <laughs> Uh, and we just Dude. had we just had your exegesis on fucking Congo on this podcast, and I'm 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 you love to see it. 
You'd love to see. You'd love to see it. Tim Curry is doing the most in that movie <laughs> as like a Russian benefactor. Question mark. I have I have not seen this movie in so long, and I'm so Dude, excited to see it. The central trio of Laura, Lenny, Dylan. Has anyone ever been hotter? Walsh and mm. Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson Killer. is he? I mean. Obviously, like the MVP is the monkey, but like second MVP is Ernie Hudson. He's like right up there. Amy the gorilla, which is a person in a suit, by the way, I think it really holds up, um, is number one. And then Ernie Hudson's charisma and his like fuckwittery is just number two by far. Friend of all One Hit Meta Productions, the great director Joe Lynch, who directed Mayhem um, and uh, and Knights of Bad Astem and things like that. Both we're both very fond of. Um, Wrong Turn Two, also underrated sequel, um, horror sequel. Uh, they do a show called The Movie Crypt, and this week on the show was Ernie Hudson, in fact, talking about Congo. So a big Shut recommend, cro- cross promotional podcast recommendation for that because Ernie Hudson is a killer. And the show you would expect is going to be about Ghostbusters, and there is a Congo chunk that is like as, as good as it is that we're going to get. So good. So good. It's what so, we deserve. <laughs> what we deserve. So here, th- this great collision. Um, I, I also like, you know, we, there is going to be more conflict in the book and for folks who probably left ahead and, and, and read already know the book pretty familiar. So we, we haven't seen the last of these guys that, um, or, or, or more people that have a, a part of this, but right now I love, there is just such a massive amount of information here. So like you get this great, uh, what, what, what it conjured in my mind is that moment in Lord of the Rings fellowship of the ring where um, the moonlight hits the door before they go into the mines of Moria and it lights up with that beautiful pattern. And so, so like as he lifts his tail out of the water and you start to see the patterns on the moonlight, it's like, Oh, this cool. Speak friend and enter baby. (laughs) Speak friend and enter. You know, like, here we go. Like, let's get in there. Um, But speak friend and enter god i've just started thinking about what you're saying about the shape of water but (laughs) what i would say is you know there's there's all this stuff that starts to immediately get tied together um how do you how are you layering that out was it just like i have to get everything out now because we literally are two 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 pieces of the entire book's puzzle away i have to get everything out this is the kitchen sink moment they have to know everything it is the really the kitchen sink moment because the Chapters that come after this. So chapter 13 and the epilogue are event-based chapters. There's very few revelations left by that point. There's a few. There's like some small ones, but the big ones come to a head in this chapter. Chapter 12 is a moneymaker. But in particular, I mean, we've spoken about this in the past few eps. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 are just as critical. It is a tight book. It's like a tight 80,000 or thereabouts. So you really can't have any wasted moments. And in the same way that I cut that whole chunk from the prologue where it's the back and forth with the professor and the henchman that gave too much away. And I just, <laughs> there's also like some hectic torture in there. And I was like, get that out of here. Um, <laughs> I had to get it out. It was just fucked. It's like too hard a way to start a book. You want the entry point to be easy, but it's sprinkling all of those things in early and consistently. Like when Kaya is learning notices the shapes on his body and the grooves that's like half a book ago more Mm. than you know what I mean and so that realization and what that means is happening now the discovery of the research happens chapter seven and eight and the understanding of what that means and why it 
like why that's relevant happens now. We learn what it means really in chapter 11, but we understand the why in this chapter. And that stuff is really important. There's a line that um, he says like that there could be hundreds like you out there. And I read it. I was like, oh, bless him. <laughs> this, there's like thousands. But yeah. it was like such a cute moment of like these people are just so out of their depth and are trying to take a human level understanding to an inhuman situation and problem, which I find fun. Like that's why this, like the reason Stranger Things is fun is because it throws like the normal amongst the abnormal yes. and it's the clash of how those two things happen that cause so much conflict, but are also just like so meaty story-wise and so enjoyable to watch from an audience perspective. And it's about trying to do those things, but it's like, you know, you have two chapters to go. If you're leaving something on the table, why? is the question, you know, is there going to be a sequel to this book? Then you would save some shit, but like we're wrapping this story up. We want it to feel like a whole solid conclusion. That's not to say everything will be evolved or that there'll be happy endings, but we at least want the audience to feel like the journey reached a natural conclusion. Even if there are a few little side avenues where you could just like go for a little tramp up the hill or whatever, metaphorically. Well, we've, we're also, you know, after we get all this information shared and after it's all out on the table and after everything, there's this beautiful sort of exultant moment where like Amos is like, woo, and like flies through the air, (laughs) but he kind of doesn't realize he has a passenger until he's like mid flight before he's like uh, doing that. So it's kind of like, you know, I think almost like in some ways he as a character is like, like, oh, it's shit. It's all out on the table. You know, like, here we yeah. are. I can find where I'm going to go. I don't have to stay in this lake anymore. It's like, there's just so much going for this moment. He's going to get a life for the first time ever in his consciousness. Like, if you're going to have your free willy moment, you got to have it. Like, <laughs> at the moment when that's a realization, you know, let alone when it's a reality. Um, it needs to feel joyous and uplifting and elevated, um, even though it no- won't necessarily work out quite as smoothly, shall we say. Shall we'll we say. say? Shall we say? Will we shall we say? We'll, we'll say. I'll say. Is there anything else before we wrap up today's episode, our third last episode, and probably our second last lengthy episode because the final epilogue is only, you know, a few by comparison to one of our normal chapters, a few moments long. Is there mm. anything else that uh, has been left on the table in this chapter that you want to exhume before you dance out of the water and I ride on your back <laughs> into the final chapter? <laughs> oh my God. I love that flip. Frip blows gender roles. Um, when we're talking about the shapes of Amos and how he looks in the structure and him being freshly shaven now, it was making me chuckle because I was thinking about these, this mother daughter combo who come along to all the pop culture conventions and who are really big fans of it came from the deep. I think they read it came from the deep first before read, they read any of my other books. Um, Kat Trembath is the name of the daughter. I can't remember the name of the mom. I'm so sorry. Stroke brain, please don't be offended. But they um, made me an Amos doll. (laughs) That was, so it was like literally like a Ken doll, (laughs) but Amos. So he's got like, I mean, it's not anatomically correct, but it just looks cool. And he's got like the same hair and everything. So it's all shaven and he's got like a bluey, like aqua shining tail. It's so cool. It was the coolest thing ever. It was the first time anybody had made a doll based on one of my characters. Um, 
And it became like the little mascot that whenever I would do pop culture conventions or whatever, I would put little Amos the doll up on the books and people who knew, knew, like they'd see it and be like, oh my God, that's so cool. That's the doll. I was like, right. And they're like, where can you get that? And I'm like, you can't, it's one of a kind. Well, it's it one of one. Me. one of one, one of one, but they made them of Tommy as well um, later. And they made her, like they made the tail and they made Tommy's clothes custom like they sewed the little barbie clothes together fucking amazing shit honestly people are just like (laughs) so unbelievably talented the best but yeah i was thinking about that as they're talking about the swirls in his body and stuff and i was like looking at the little amos doll that i had sitting on my desk i was like you just love to see it you'd love to see it you'd love to see that mermaid tail out speak friend for the boy (laughs) speak friend and enter baby It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis, read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe and share with your mermates.